May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. So, earlier this week I opened up my Facebook page in the morning and it reminded me of an event six years ago which uh, happened here, an event which uh, really shook up my sense of who I was. Uh, six weeks ago last week, I was standing here and Bishop David Rice declared me a vicar. Well, I'd given up any desire to be a vicar years ago, years and years ago. It was not on my life plan. I was a youth worker and I spent my life being a youth worker and I was an educator and I'd been an educator for the last 30 years. But a vicar, well, no, I hadn't thought about being a vicar really. But here I was, a vicar, and Joseph can tell you that I hid in my office for the first few days, pretending to unpack my boxes and get my shelves sorted out, while I tried to get my head around the fact that I was a vicar. That label, vicar, was a, was a new way of seeing myself. I'm sure you've all had that experience, starting a new profession, was the same kind of experience becoming a, a teacher for the first time and standing up in front of a bunch of unruly 15-year-olds who really didn't want to be there. Or when you get engaged, I can remember that being incredibly unnerving. At one moment I was, you know, like seriously involved with someone and the next minute we were engaged. That kind of, I felt the ground under my feet move and then we were married and it moved again or when you become a parent for the first time. Or birthdays. You know, especially those ones with zeros tucked on the edge. I can remember before turning 40 having to go for a long walk to sort out my head about what that meant. And, uh, well, you know, here's another one just snuck up on me. And the labels that get associated with that. Um, One of my most memorable classes at St John's College... Uh, was memorable for what a disaster it was. So it was in pastoral care in my first year, and it was ministry to the middle-aged. So the lecturer began by saying, middle age starts at 35. Well, he had a number of people in his class who were between the age of 35 and 40 who had never thought of themselves as middle-aged. And that, well, they just went into crisis. And the rest of us just sat back because we were well away from 35 and watched as Terry tried to pass it to these people who he had just called middle-aged. And I kind of had that similar experience the other night at Vestry when Ainsley told me that when you're 60, you're no longer middle-aged. And I was like, what? That's outrageous! But last night I looked up Wikipedia, and Wikipedia told me I'm middle-aged until I'm 65. So there's young adulthood, middle-aged Elderly, so 65 when they give me some extra money and a gold card. But you know, nothing at 60. I mean, you're not elderly, you're not middle aged. What are you at 60? You don't get a gold card, there's no pension, so surely you're still middle aged. All of these moments are moments of crisis, crisis of identity, critical moments when how we see ourselves and how we see ourselves in the world shifts, it changes, and how we live in the world needs to be rethought in some way. They are moments of danger, 
because you can become unravelled at those moments, but they are also moments of opportunity. The Chinese kind of figure for crisis is, the character for crisis is both the character for danger and opportunity. Both those characters, both those meanings are held in the Chinese character for opportunities. So, just let's pause for a moment and think about what have been those moments of crisis of identity for you in your life, the times when you've had to rethink who you are in the world. Two of our stories today are about these moments of crisis. So our first Testament story is is one of those massive moments. So we've had this picture up there for a while. And we heard the story of Abraham and Sarai. Now, by this point in the Genesis story, and Genesis, well, the whole of the first five books are a little bit tricky to read, but Genesis in particular, because there's more than one tradition being woven together. So you'll often get two versions of the same story, sometimes side by side. The creation story is a great example of that. So they didn't try to say this is the best version of that story. They just put them all in there. So in fact we get several versions of this story of Abraham and God meeting and receiving the covenant. But today's version, Abraham has already had a son to Hagar, Sarai's slave, Ishmael. And he is the ancestor of Islam. In fact, if you go to a mosque and listen to the stories, you'll hear all the familiar stories about Abraham and Isaac, except they're with Abraham, Ibrahim and Ishmael. It's very unnerving. It's like, I know that story. Oh, but your version is slightly different from ours. And, and so we just assume that they're about Isaac. And in fact, the imam just assumes that our versions are all about Ishmael. So it's quite interesting, really, um, hearing those same stories. But anyway, that's an aside. And uh, so he's had the son and um, the promise of having a multitude of uh, descendants, he thinks, will be born out through that son. Um, but in this, in this encounter with God, uh, he has given another promise. So he and Sarai, his beloved, have given up hope of ever having children. They've given up hope of ever being parents together. And so their sense of who they are in the world as a couple and Sarai's sense of who she is in the world are shaped by this lack of children. She has passed childbearing years and she's a little bit bitter and she's a little bit angry about this. We get that from the text very much. She doesn't treat Hagar, her slave, very well at all after Hagar has a baby. Today we heard how Abram meets God and is again given the promise that his son through Sarai would be a multitude, which means would be the means by which the covenant from chapter 12, blessed to be a blessing, would be fulfilled. So just imagine that moment for both of them, both Abram and Sarai. They have this way of seeing themselves in the world as a childless couple with all the shame that that brings, with all the disappointment and sadness that brings, particularly for Sarai. 
And at this moment they are promised that yes, they will have a child. Imagine the disbelief and the hurt and the hope. This was a moment of crisis, of danger and opportunity. And to show how important this moment was, they were given new names. Abram, which means high father, was changed to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. And Sarai, which means my princess, was changed to Sarah, which means mother of nations. So their sense of identity, their sense of who they are, shifted markedly from this point on in the story. And to mark that, they were given new names. So when have you had moments as significant as that? When have been the significant moments for you in your life? And if you had been given a new name, what new name would have you been given at those moments? Our gospel story is even bigger. Peter gets a hard time here, but I think his reaction is pretty understandable. He's already had a few really big moments where he's had to think, rethink who he is. So he started life as a fisherman. That's who he was. He grew up as a fisherman. He was going to work as a fisherman. That defined who he was and how he was in the world. And then along comes this rabbi, and he says, well, I will no longer be a fisherman, I will be a disciple. So he follows this rabbi, who has all this amazing teaching and is able to heal people. And as a disciple, he follows behind the rabbi, going everywhere with the rabbi, so that he might learn as much as he can from this rabbi. But after a while, Jesus asks who people were saying who he was. And after a few of their answers, he then says, So who do you think I am? I suspect Peter had been building up to this new way of seeing things for quite some time. But this is a real crisis point, because his answer carries an astounding amount of danger. He names Jesus Messiah. Now that's dangerous both for Jesus and for him. And it not only is a title that he applies to Jesus, but he changes from being a disciple of a rabbi to a follower of a Messiah. That's a different way of seeing yourself in the world. And it carries with it a lot of hope, but a lot of danger. That title, Messiah, brings down the wrath of Rome, the wrath of Herod and the wrath of of the rulers of the temple, the families of the chief priests. And at that moment of saying that word, you are the Messiah, Peter's identity takes a dramatic shift, a severe shift. Just imagine the thrill and the terror of that moment. And Jesus responds to this moment by doing two things. The first is, he orders them to not tell anyone. So there's the whole messianic secret thing going on in Mark, and people have written books about this, but at this point, it's a very simple reason why he does this. 
This is a dangerous title. People die for being called Messiah. So Jesus quite rightly says, well, don't tell anyone because that's going to bring a whole lot of attention we don't need at this point. But then, while Peter's all excited and terrified all at the same time, he teaches them about how the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. I think Peter stopped listening at killed. Didn't hear the second, the last bit. Because this is his worst, worst case scenario. When you apply the title of Messiah to someone, that generally meant they got killed. If you looked around Jerusalem, if you looked around Israel and all the other people had said they were Messiahs, they ended up either dead on the ground, beheaded or killed in a battle, or on a cross. And here's Jesus saying, not that he is going to be the victorious one, not that the Romans are going to be kicked out, but he says, and I too will die at the hands of these people. This is my fate. Which, as a follower of that Messiah, generally means that's your fate too. Understandably, Peter's not too chirpy about this. And so... He pushes back and quietly takes Jesus aside because, well, Jesus is still his rabbi, is still the person that he is supposed to follow. He's not supposed to question his rabbi. And he quietly says, really? Like, this doesn't sound how it's supposed to pan out. Because what Jesus is saying is horrific for everyone who is following him. They have walked down roads of crosses all their lives. Crosses with people dying and dead bodies on them being pecked by the birds and the wild animals. And here is Jesus saying, this is, if everything goes right, if everything goes to plan, this is where they are heading. That was the temptation wasn't it? To not see that as the end point, but to go with Peter's idea that Rome would be expelled and the high priest would be cleansed and that the reign of God would begin in the way that they hoped it would begin. But Jesus knew that the powers of evil are only defeated by the cross, not by force of arms. And Jesus then confirms this with his astounding statement said openly to all who will hear now we keep missing how important this is but up to this point Jesus everything Jesus said was in secret tell no one tell no one tell no one he says that again and again and again but this time he openly says to everyone if anyone would come after me let him deny himself take up his cross and follow me that great line that we have known so well as Christians and we have lost all the horror and the shock of. But just imagine being a first century Jew listening to that phrase, looking at all the crosses surrounding you. All that Peter thought he knew about himself, all that he thought about how he was in the world as a follower of Jesus, all the new ways he had learned of seeing himself 
at that moment turned to ash. And that is the invitation of Lent. To allow Jesus to speak these words to us, not the nice words we have made them into. These are words that should call into question everything that we believe about God, about Jesus, and about ourselves. So this morning I'm going to invite you to place yourself in this story. And I'm going to read it again. And as I read it, I want you to hear what Jesus is saying to you. And the invitation to what you need to let go of. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let them deny, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. <laughs> 